All right. So you also have a study sheet for the exam, coming or the exam two coming around. And um, the exam will be the same format as last time. We will, I think, have maybe 15 minutes more for taking the exam, something like 30 minutes more, so you have an hour and a half. So for those of you who locked up and had muscle spasms in your hand, you'll have enough time to, to write the, uh, actually we'll expect you to write your exam in poetry, um, given that extra time. Uh, so good luck with that. Um, and we will announce a study session or review session? Wednesday? Okay, we'll announce our review session on Wednesday. Uh, should be no surprises. So, um, what we decided to do as we finished up our discussion of emotion in our textbook uh, is to take stock of a really interesting uh, emergent literature in the study of emotion, which is the study of happiness and well-being uh, that is part of this emergent discipline called positive psychology that some of you have heard about. Um, and it is a really interesting emphasis in the social sciences more broadly that has captivated psychologists and neuroscientists and economists and sociologists and the like, which is really uh, aimed at addressing an age-old question that really motivated Plato and Aristotle and all the great thinkers, Confucius and Lao Tzu and others, which is, what does it really mean to be happy? What does it really mean to lead an ethical, well-lived, uh, contended life? And the science of happiness uh, has started to yield some really interesting insights. And what I'd like to do as we round out our discussion and we move from our topics of emotional dysfunction and depression and externalizing disorder and, uh, and the like and, and really the benefits of insight is to turn to this other side of the human spectrum, uh, which really is just as important uh, as to understand how emotions contribute to dysfunction, and to begin to look at what, are the, what is the role of emotion in uh, studying happiness, and what is this emotional phenomenon called happiness to begin with in the first place. So what I'd like to do today is to give you just a little bit of history to the concept happiness. Um, you know, one of the things that we talked about in cultural influences on emotion is that across history, the meaning of a particular concept in emotion might change, and it might change over time, like we talked in the textbook about the emergence culturally of the concept of romantic love. And what Darren McMahon has shown is that there's really interesting changes historically in what the meaning of happiness is. And I'd like to convey that to you and really use this historical shift in happiness as a little bit of a warning sign uh, for people like you and me. Um, then what I'd like to do is to talk about the benefits of happiness. Uh, it's almost tautological or self-evident to talk about the benefits of happiness because Happiness, to a certain extent, is its own reward. It feels good, probably makes you more effective uh, in your immediate social environment. But Ed Diener and Sonia Lubomirsky have done a recent review looking at you know, comparing sort of really happy people with less happy people, and looking at the benefits of happiness. And what you find is that notwithstanding the stereotypes against happy people, um, happiness has a lot of really important social health uh, and intellectual benefits that I'll just briefly touch upon. Then, given that as background, we'll turn to the question of, well, what in the world is happiness? And I think that we can approach this question from a couple levels of analysis. One is really to ask, uh, well, 
my momentary experience of enjoyment or pleasure. What, what determines that, right? What is happiness and pleasure? Uh, earlier in the class, we talked about some of the neurological underpinnings, the relationship between dopamine and the opioid system and sort of experiences of enthusiasm and contentment or enjoyment of a stimulus. But what we'll see here is uh, the very interesting insights of Danny Kahneman, a Nobel Prize winner, uh, formerly of Berkeley, who's interested in the temporal dynamics of pleasure and what, what does it really mean to take pleasure in a stimulus. And what we'll see are some interesting characteristics of that. And then I'll talk about the broad determinants of, of happiness as discerned in the literature on happiness and well-being. Uh, they are determinants that will not surprise you, but they will suggest that certain facets of our cultural ideology are actually perhaps misguided. Uh, and then what they do is set the stage for our final meeting, which is really to think about what has emotion produced or what has evolution designed in human emotion that enables us to lead the happy and ethical and good life, which I'll conclude with uh, on Wednesday. So uh, first, a little bit of history with respect to the topic of happiness. Um, and this is a wonderful book that uh, has been put out by Darren McMahon. And I, I have a deep sense that I may be misspelling his last name. Um, but he actually was a UC Berkeley undergraduate, is now a history professor at Florida State, uh, and has, uh, I, I forgot my, the, his, the copy of his book, so I couldn't track down his spelling. But, um, and has just written a, written a prize-winning history of the changes in the, the meaning of the concept of happiness over time. And it actually is quite interesting. Um, in Greek, the Greek times, happiness was really tied to faith and to virtue. And when you think about living 2,500 years ago, um, when the social and physical condition, conditions of living were much different than they are today, survival rates were lower, one in four children were, were, were likely to die from um, childbirth, uh, the risks of childbirth were dramatic for women. Uh, people were leading very shortened lives that were disrupted by plague and ruin and the like. Uh, people had a much different concept of happiness. It really had to do with um, sort of having fate smile pleasantly upon you and not dealing you these tremendous blows to the likelihood of survival. And then more importantly, it, had, it was really tied to this concept that we talk about uh, that Aristotle and Plato talked about, which is eudaimonia. We cited in the textbook. And eudaimonia simply means, uh, it really was a cultural definition of happiness, which had to do with, are you meeting your social obligations and fulfilling your social connections effectively and with virtue? And the great answers philosophically during the classical period about what is happiness really had to do with not how do you feel in this moment? Are you self-actualized? Or you know, did Cal beat Stanford? Yes, anyway, I, uh, but did you lead a virtuous life with the people who mattered most around you? And in fact, most of the great claims about happiness were about people who had end, had lived their full lives and they were over. And the happy person was thought to have been good to the people around them. It was really a social condition connected to virtue and being good to others. Uh, happiness, McMahon suggests, changes dramatically uh, during the period of enlightenment, 17th and 18th century, when if you go to your history books, you'll quickly learn that the Age of Enlightenment, which was a kind of a philosophical movement that had strong places in Great Britain and Scotland and other parts of Europe, 
uh, in France, uh, where we really started to develop the scientific method, uh, the idea of using reason to combat or to sort of countervail against ideology and dogma, the power of reason. And very importantly, uh, what emerged in the Age of Enlightenment is the concept of individual rights. And the idea that the individual is sacred, can't be sacrificed for a political cause or the community, that all individuals have equal standing. And what emerged in the period of the Enlightenment is the concept that all individuals have a right to happiness, that it really has the same kind of standing morally as a right to, uh, to free speech or a right to hold the political convictions that you do. And what we see very intuitively is that this new philosophy of individual rights and individual and happiness being one of the important rights that defines good living is transported to the United States where in our Constitution and the preamble and the like uh, Declaration of Independence we talk about uh, the right to happiness. Um, Continuing to the present day, what a lot of commentators, uh, including McMahon uh, and Dave Myers in particular, who is also important on this topic, have argued uh, that our sense of what it means to be happy has become more individualized uh, and has moved toward the direction of emphasizing materialism and, and financial gain. Um, and uh, Myers and McMahon uh, in the philosophical literature cite a variety of interesting studies out there that suggest that today, you know, when I study uh, my young children uh, and the ethos that they're brought up in and the ideas that they're receiving, uh, more and more today there's an emphasis on happiness being equated with financial standing and material gain. So I'll give you a couple of illustrative findings. Um, in surveys that David Myers cites in his book, The American Paradox, uh, undergraduates today um, cite as the major reason for going to college 74% uh, of the time, uh, this is a nationally representative survey, uh, is the interest in making more money, right? Uh, compared to 25% would offer that same answer 25, 30 years ago. So there's a threefold increase in the idea that a training in undergraduate education, its ultimate end is material gain as opposed to things like developing a philosophy of life. And I know you guys would not uh, answer in that sense, uh, but um, that is worrisome in, in from Meyer's perspective. There are really interesting studies that, uh, that Alan de Botton summarizes in a really neat book, Status Anxiety, fun read if you guys are interested in sort of culture and uh, like, and his basic idea is we've come to, um, to define our well-being in the uh, industrialized West in terms of material gain. He has some amazing data on shifts in what people consider to be basic needs in order for them to feel like fulfilled human beings in the past 20 or 30 years. And the answer is obvious, but if you look at these data like 30 years ago, what do I think is essential to, be, to meet my basic needs and to be a contented person compared to today? You see a rise in the prominence of material products. So things like you know, 20 years ago, having a second television wasn't really important to 
being a happy individual. Now when you survey the average American adult, 50 to 60% of the people say it is. So his claim is that these material gains and objects become, have been defined philosophically as what's more important to our well-being. So this is probably pretty self-evident to you, and you see a lot of evidence out in the world. Now, there are a lot of reasons uh, to suggest that this is misguided. Um, one of them is the work by Dan Gilbert, and if you take my social psychology course, we'll talk about this. Very influential work uh, summarized in his book, Stumbling on Happiness. And basically what he gets people to do is predict how much will changes in your life make you happy, right? And then he surveys those people at the time that the change occurs and sees if the actual change influenced their well-being. And you see a lot, basically people cannot predict what makes them happy or not. Our theories aren't that good in guiding us towards greater happiness in this culture. Uh, so for example, people think they're going to be really unhappy when they break up romantically in college. Turns out when they break up romantically, they're as happy as they were before, maybe even a little happier, which makes you a little worried uh, about your relationships. Um, but one of the generalizations that emerges in Gilbert's research on effective forecasting is that when you ask people to make predictions about gaining in their career and being promoted and having increased salaries, people think that's going to really change their well-being. But when you survey them at the time, like when professors get tenure, right, something they worry about a lot, they're no more or less happy than they were if they don't get tenure. So our theories that changes in our material well-being benefit us are actually misguided. So there is a rich literature from historical analyses, survey data, and the like that suggests we've seen a dramatic shift in this concept we call happiness uh, from sort of an emphasis on being virtuous socially and civically to the prioritization of the individual toward greater material content in our theories of what makes us happy. So, what are the benefits of happiness? Um, and this is a survey by um, the preeminent researcher in this literature, so I'll write his name, very big, uh, Ed Diener and Laura King. Sonia Lubomirsky, and they have been doing, uh, Ed Diener really is one of the central players in this field, and he's been surveying people's happiness uh, for the past 20 years, what he calls subjective well-being, um, and there now is a very rich literature, and a lot of people are studying the nature of happiness and what makes us happy and what does not. Um, and so they take advantage of this growing literature and survey what are the correlates of being in a happy state or being somebody who tends to be happy and happy in life. Um, do we, how do people fare if, if they're happy? Uh, Diener likes to juxtapose this with a lot of stereotypes that we have about happy people. And you know, when you, if you, like if you tell people like, Oh, I met this really happy guy the other day as opposed to, I met this guy who was really suffering a lot and sort of going through a lot of existential anxiety, right? We tend to think like, well, the happy guy is kind of dumb. You know, he wouldn't say too many things that are interesting. He's probably likely to walk in front of a truck, not live too long. Um, probably if you hired the happy guy, you know, or the happy woman, she wouldn't be that effective at, jo at the job. 
you know, better to hire the really serious adversarial, you know, fighter uh, and the like. And it turns out, you know, Diener plays up these stereotypes. To what, a, to what extent people hold them or not is a, another question. Um, but this review suggests that happiness, uh, the state of being content, uh, and we'll define it in a little bit more detail, uh, has a lot of benefits and is something, therefore, uh, to be cultivated. So what we find, for example, it goes without saying that happy individuals fare better in their relationships. So if you recall our work uh, from Gottman and the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and the pro-social predictors of healthy marriages uh, and intimate bonds, you know, one way to interpret a lot of those positive predictors of satisfaction in a romantic relationship is that they are happier, they're more forgiving and more playful and emphasize equality and express more positive things, ratio five to six to one in the relationship, the happy state and disposition promotes healthier relationships. And then when you put that in the context of the attachment literature, what that means, which we've studied thus far, is that these happy relationships are likely to have more contented, securely attached children, uh, and they're likely to be, is gonna be a generational transmission of those benefits. Yeah, Horace. So, you know, you know, we always should be concerned about causality. And Forrest is raising this question. Maybe they're, you know, to what it, in what direction does this causal relationship flow? Is it really happy relationships make you happy uh, versus the other direction? Happiness makes, you, makes for happier relationships. In that particular study, uh, we can't do random assignment to, like, Forrest, you get to be in the unhappy marriage. And, you know, you get to be in the happy marriage. Good luck. Uh, at, we're not at that level of science. But, um, but there are some causal uh, studies that I'll talk about in a second. So um, good question. All right, so good for relationships. It is good for work. And there are new studies coming out in the organizational behavior literature um, and, uh, and in elsewhere that you know happier workplaces, workplaces that are more cooperative, um, and Jenny Chapman and others up at the Haas School of Business have reviewed some of this literature, as has Barry Staw, that happiness actually promotes productivity in the workplace. And they're interesting, Diener reduces it to an equation where certain degree of happiness actually predicts increases in the productivity and economic well-being of the individual. So that is clear. Uh, a third big effect is creativity. And here, um, I alluded to these two individuals when we talked about emotion and cognition at the start of our second half of the class. And I'll cite them again uh, on Barb Fredrickson and Alex Eisen, um, on, who have done experimental studies of putting people into contented states versus less neutral states or unhappy states, and exploring how happiness affects your cognition. And I just briefly touched upon this earlier, but it, it's, it bears repeating here. You know, it's so funny. There, uh, there's this stereotype, uh, you know, that 
you know, that the really creative people in the world are miserable, right? And you, you probably, you know, you can pull it off. If you, if you look miserable, your friends think you're smarter, you know, and you, oh, I'm really suffering here. And they go, oh, it must, it must be deep, right? Um, or a form of a intelligence that I don't have access to. Um, there are very few data that uh, speak to the relationship between despair and artistic creativity. Uh, not that I can find it. I don't know if you guys have seen them. In fact, it's one of these stereotypes that we have that somehow suffering and anxiety and despair make you more creative. That's a stereotype and very likely to be wrong. Um, and what we do know through very nice experimental studies is that happiness uh, as experimentally induced. You make people hear a pleasant song, or you give them a little piece of candy, or you praise them, you know, and tell them that they've done really well on some IQ test. Uh, multiple sources of happiness actually make people more creative in their decision making and their cognition. And Barb Fredrickson, in summarizing this literature, has called this the broaden and build theory of positive emotion. And what she argues, and it's gaining a lot of empirical credibility, is that negative emotions, like fear in particular, narrow your thinking, make you focus really analytically on very narrow things about or facets of a, an idea or a problem or an object, right? Positive emotion makes you broaden out and build connections and think creatively and think about alternative perspectives. And Eisen and Fredrickson have done dozens of studies. And what you find is that when you're in a positive emotion, you're, you're more able to think outside of the box to solve, to do problem solving. You think more creatively in how you categorize objects. You are more creative uh, in your interpretation of things. You are more able to make connections between distally related objects, right? So, Whereas we have the stereotype of happiness being damaging to our intellectual output, the converse is actually the case, that we're more creative in our uh, output. Finally, um, there are health benefits to happiness. And uh, there is a famous study that uh, is summarized in this article where they looked at the narratives of nuns who were um, uh, entering into a convent and they just talked about their lives and they coded the content of those narratives, right? And they ascertained whether the nun was really happy or unhappy when they entered the convent in the early 20s. Uh, and what they found is that the happier nuns, and I can't remember the exact figure, but they lived something like nine years longer than the unhappy nuns. And Diener has summarized a lot of the data. And what you find is that happy individuals, um, just they have stronger, more robust health, and they're able to live longer lives. What do you think, what do you think explains that effect? Happiness is associated with longevity.
nice. That, you know, you could think about, and, and this is relevant, you know, uh, this is part of the problem with depression and also externalizing disorder. Young boys or men who are suffering from antisocial tendencies, and, and, uh, an emotional dysfunction associated with a lot of negative emotion, do a lot of damaging things for their health. They're more likely to drink and smoke and, you know, drive fast and do dangerous activities, and that curtails longevity. And so perhaps the counterpart is also true, that positive emotion and a positive disposition leads to more health-related activities. That'd be interesting to explore. Forrest. Yeah, excellent observation. So we know, and I talked about this earlier, that stress leads to a lot of health problems, right? Compromised immune function, problems even at the neurological level in the brain. So maybe happiness sort of shuts down those stress-related processes. Do we know about happiness and stress? Yeah, I think that we don't really know whether that's true or not. And I, and I sense your hesitation about that claim, but uh, that's a possibility, strong possibility. What else would explain this result? Happiness leads to greater longevity. Yeah. Nice. So, and we know happiness promotes more positive relationships in marriage with friendships, richer social networks. Uh, that we know. Uh, we also know that, um, and you know, you could think about the, the sort of the converse being the case of depression, which we talked about with Gottlieb and Hammond's work. Depressive states kind of reduce social networks. Uh, and what we also know from a very rich literature, social networks facilitate health, right? They help us respond more strongly to disease and the like. So maybe that's the mechanism that produced the effect. Other ideas about, yeah. Uh, not that I remember. That's a good question. So Ed Diener, in summarizing this, says, uh, and I just saw him in a talk in September, he says, you know, you look at, and, and I hope you don't take the wrong message from this, but you, know, you look at the major determinants of compromised longevity in industrialized cultures, which is what this research summarizes. Uh, you know, drinking takes away a year of your life, smoking a couple of years, bad marriage a year or two, you know, put them all together. You know, I won't go there, but... Um, you know, and happiness adds like seven or eight years to your life. And it looks, you know, in his comparison, like this is the most powerful predictor of happiness of all the kinds of health outcomes that you can put up there. And it inevitably leads to the question, so, so smoking makes me happy. Do I gain in the long run? And I won't answer that. I hope you don't smoke. But, um, but happiness is related to longevity. Very powerful uh, effect. Um, all right, so what do we mean by happiness? And Danny Kahneman, in a very nice review, uh, suggests that we consider a couple of different levels to this concept of happiness. Um, the first is really pleasure, and I'm going to talk about some of the research there. The second is positive emotion, right? When, you, when a person, when you ask someone, are you happy right now, right? Or how's it going? They say, oh, I'm really happy. 
right? Could be that they're just reporting upon their current pleasure. Wow, my shoes feel good. It's a sunny day. It's beating on my cheeks. I just had the best piece of pizza. Oh, but maybe I'm depressed. It's going to hurt me, you know, whatever. That sensory pleasure is one kind of happiness, and we'll talk about the clues to the determinants of sensory pleasure. The second level is the positive emotions, which I'll kind of summarize on Wednesday. And then the third is kind of this broader metaphysical consideration or existential consideration about how is your life going right now? Are you content with how your life is, your life satisfaction, your subjective well-being? So Kahneman suggests that we think about the question of happiness very sensibly at three levels of analysis. Sensory pleasure, right? Mm, this ice cream makes me happy. Emotion, wow, I feel a lot of love for the people around me. And then the final one is, how is my life going, right? My, my life satisfaction or subjective well-being. So what have we learned about the determinants of our pleasurable experience? And this is fascinating work carried out by Danny Kahneman um, and uh, Barb Fredrickson, who did the broaden and build theory uh, and others, and uh, it actually was work that started here at UC Berkeley when Danny Kahneman was here at UC Berkeley in our psychology department. And Kahneman was really interested, and still is interested to this day, of when you have an experience of pleasure, right? Let's say you really enjoy a walk with a friend on a sunny afternoon, or you have a great ice cream cone, you know, like uh, that I just had with my daughters, where everybody is just transfixed, and you're like, oh my God, this is, you know. Uh, and, you know, I mean, kids are amazing. I have a, my daughter has a friend who, when he eats, he's in third grade, you know, when he eats ice, chocolate ice cream in particular, he, you know, Noah, he, like, he stops speaking English. And she ends up with ice cream all over his face. And I, and I tell my friends, like, watch this, Noah, you know, and he, and he comes in like, whoa, whoa, you know. And, 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 so, and then he pulls out of it, and it's like, well, what, what determines the experience of pleasure? And then you could ask, Complementarily, what determines suffering and pain, right? What are the temporal determinants of suffering and pain? Um, and this has really important policy implications because, you know, a lot of our criminal justice system is based on the idea that a certain amount of suffering makes you reform your character and lead to reductions in criminal behavior. You may make your romantic partner, you may make them suffer a lot so that they don't cheat on you again or whatever the case may be. So clearly we want to know, you know, what is it that makes for a pleasurable experience? And what is it that dictates the power of suffering and pain? Um, and Kahneman and Fredrickson started doing this line of work in 1993, uh, and it's, it's continuing to the present day, which is really kind of the, you know, you could have a fran fancy term for it, the temporal dynamics of hedonic experience. How does the nature of pleasure uh, influence our, our judgments about that pleasure. So here's what they do. They have studied several different published studies. Uh, they get people to provide online ratings of their experience of pleasure or pain as they're going through a pleasurable or painful experience, right? So you just, you second by second, you use a dial and you go, oh, I'm feeling really good. No, I'm not feeling so good. Wow, I'm feeling really horrible. Now things are really good. Right? You guys following me so far? So I'm tracking, I'm providing second-by-second second assessments 
of how the experience of pleasure or pain is unfolding. Okay? Um, so in the experiments, they are, for example, they're given ice cream and they rate what's the experience of eating ice cream or yogurt like. They get to watch a really neat movie for a couple of minutes and they give you second by second assessments of how much pleasure am I experiencing, right? Uh, Kahneman has done work on suffering too, which is like you stick your arm in a cold presser cask and you're sitting there and your arm is, you know, cold. Do you guys know what the cold presser cask is? It's a, a body, you put ice in a chest, you get water circulating, and you can keep water at a temperature of about 34 degrees, like just above freezing. And then you get the unsuspecting participants to stick their arm in for as long as they can keep it in. Their arm starts turning blue. They pull it out. It's like, you know, they lose their ability to move their fingers, but just momentarily. And you can see, like, how much are you suffering at this moment? And you're like, you're rating it. Well, it's not so bad. Whoa, it's getting bad, 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 you know. Um, then you map the temporal dynamics of pleasure and pain, and then you say, what predicts my report of whether that was pleasurable or painful, right? Kahneman has actually done this work where people are having colonoscopies, which is one of the most painful <laughs> surgeries. They're like, ah, you know. Uh, and then you, you get a report of how much happiness did you derive from that experience, or how much did you suffer? Okay? Now, actually, and there is an important wisdom in this um, from, uh, for all kinds of, just like all of Kahneman's work, it has a lot of important implications. Um, what do you guys think would drive, what pieces of a, a period of pleasure would predict our subsequent reports of suffering or happiness? What do you think would be most important? How would you start to think about what little pieces of an experience of pleasure or pain determine our reports of suffering or happiness? Any intuition? Yeah, Israel. Yeah, that certainly would be the case, wouldn't it? Which is, you know, about the distraction and rumination literature. That'd be a great study to do, right? Think about your pain over and over, and, and you get a big report, okay? Yeah, right. Literature uh, that says that expectations about pain actually have a very powerful effect on how much pain you get. Well, here are the pieces of wisdom that Kahneman and Fredrickson derive from this really interesting work. First of all, here's something that doesn't predict your pleasure or suffering, and that's how long the experience was. Pretty amazing when you think about it. Whether you have your arm in the cold presser cast two minutes or six doesn't predict how much suffering you report. Whether you get to watch five minutes of really funny videos or ten doesn't predict how much suffering or pleasure you report. Okay? So they call that duration neglect. The length of the experience doesn't matter. Whether you go on a five-minute or, you know, not five minutes, but, you know, a five-day vacation in the tropics, or 12 days, three times the cost, go for five. No, okay. Um, that's duration neglect. Here's the more interesting one, which is what they call the peak end rule to suffering and pleasure. That the two most important determinants of your reports of pleasure and suffering are 
the peak moment of the experience, right, the maximum intensity of suffering report or how delicious the ice cream tastes, and then the experience at the end. The last couple of seconds of your experience really drive your reports of pleasure or suffering. Makes sense, because that's probably what's crystallizing your memories of the experience and the like. So, in understanding this one level of pleasure and happiness, our sensory pleasure and our sensory suffering, what we've learned from this literature is duration neglect, the length of the experience doesn't matter, and of course, the peak end rule. What's the peak experience? And end, the ending really matters. And of course, I know it's Monday. You're thinking of your first dates or the dates you had this weekend. And this tells us, don't worry about length. Keep it short. It's OK. Yeah. Go over that maximum moment of intensity. And then make sure the ending is really good. Uh, and you'll end up in your, your partner will report lots of good things. So peak end rule and duration neglect. Any questions? Wait, try me again? I'm sorry, I missed the question. No, they're separate. So if you were to study people's second-by-second -second reports of an experience, right, it's fluctuating, and then all of a sudden there'll be a little episode that's really high, and then it comes back to some, some level that they're rating how much suffering or pleasure is being experienced, and that peak predicts reports of pleasure and suffering, and then how intense the, 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 the valence of the report at the very end also predicts pleasure and suffering. Israel. No, no, I don't think they did that statistical comparison. Have you, do you have an intuition? Do you think you'd? So here's a really interesting question, right? I, and, I, and I introduced this topic. Um, only partially facetiously, which is that, you know, think about the applications of this to punishment, which is punishment, you know, and the length of a sentence, which is going up in the United States, severity of sentencing. The idea is that the more you suffer, the more you're likely to reform yourself and not engage in recidivistic behavior. And these data would suggest that is a misguided idea that the length of suffering has little to do with your reflections upon that, that breadth of that experience. Any comments on that? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. And we don't know. They obviously, yeah, so um, we don't know. Absolutely. And so I think it's very sensible to call on the question, look, these are studies that have looked at affective experiences or hedonic experiences within a few minutes, and do the same principles hold for experiences of years? And we don't know. I'm just trying to be provocative here. Yeah. <laughs>
good point, excellent point. And then it turns out it's not, um, because different reasons. All right, Nathan. Yeah, no, I, I think it has profound implications that our experiences of pleasure and suffering aren't really tracking how long the experience is, right? that representations of pleasure and suffering really track other properties of that experience, and there are a lot of interesting implications. So um, I think it's, I agree, I think it's counterintuitive. All right, so now let's talk about the causes of this broader level of happiness, which we'll call Ed Diener calls subjective well-being. Other people talk about it in terms of life satisfaction. Um, and uh, it really is that most general, most gross level of, of happiness, of interest in this science, which is, how do you feel that you're doing in your life? Um, how do you think that life is going? Are you satisfied and content in a very deep and general sense, or are you discontent? Uh, and unsatisfied. Um, and Ed Diener and Dave Myers, and if you guys are really interested in this work, uh, the best review of it is by David Myers. And it's called The American Paradox, which we'll get to in just a second. And then Michael Argyle over at Oxford uh, in England has done a lot of work on the determinants of happiness um, and it's actually a, a really exciting discipline that that's, um, has policy implications, it has implications for um, what we do in classrooms and how you live your life. And what Diener and Dave Myers have been doing is, um, for the past 20 years, have been surveying people's levels of happiness. And they do so with a very simple instrument, which is a self-report questionnaire. And between one and five questions that bear upon how happy are you right now with your life? Simple, straightforward terminology. Now, obviously, in light of the literature that you've learned in this class, we'd probably be a little worried about the narrow nature of that measure, but that's what the field has done. And there have been dozens, if not studies, millions of people answered this question of how happy are you? Um, and what Diener and Myers have found is, and I'm gonna sort of present some general findings, and then on Wednesday, we'll think about the deeper explanations of these results. Um, what they have found, uh, and this is summarized in papers and books in the last five to seven years, um, is that there are really some, there's some very interesting determinants of happiness, okay, positive determinants. What we find, for example, uh, just for your own interest, is that um, the more education you have, the more you tend to be happy in life. That you are happier if you, if you live in particular cultures. And there are these interesting effects. It's hard to know what ma to make of them. So, you know, the U.S. is kind of in the upper third of happy countries. Um, the happiest people in the world, I think, are in Amsterdam, in Holland, you know. Uh, there are little pieces of Yugoslavia where People are more happy than it's ever been charted in human nature. Uh, you know, there, there are interesting effects. The Japanese aren't as happy as a culture. 
as you would expect, given all the economic expansion there. Um, so there are cultural effects. Um, happiness tends to co-vary at the cultural level with uh, rights, that the more that a culture gives equality and rights to its citizens or builds opportunities for that, the happier the citizens tend to be. Uh, the more inequality that you see in cultures, the less happiness. But then they get to the uh, interpersonal level, which has really been the emphasis of, the, of this class, and what you find are some really interesting, powerful effects. Gender is not related to happiness. You know, and you think about the depression literature, women are two times as likely to experience major episodes of depression. Maybe you'd expect lower levels of happiness across time. That's not true. There are really no gender effects to speak of. Very powerful. Second biggie is um, relationships. And if you had to put your money on the biggest determinant of happiness, it'd be healthy relationships. That people with close friends, people who have strong relationships to their family, people who are in strong romantic bonds, it, it is the most robust effect in the happiness literature that that is the most proximal determinant of well-being. And regrettably, there are all these new studies coming out showing that we're building a culture that makes it harder to have intimate relationships. There's just recently a study released from Duke University. In the past 20 years, Americans, survey data indicates, have lost one intimate friend. That we used to have four people we called best friends, and now we have three because we're spending too much time on the internet and in airports, okay, or whatever the case may be. Um, or at least I am. Uh, and then here's the biggie, and the next time, We'll, we'll look at our class's solution to this, which is that uh, money matters if you live in poor countries. It predicts happiness. And if you think about all the studies we talked about on social class and physical health, when you don't have money in very poor countries or in very lower SES socioeconomic strata, having money makes you happier, right? Because you can pay the doctor and pay your bills. But here's the biggie. Uh, millions of people surveyed, once they're in the middle classes and above, and almost everybody in this room will be in that category, money has only the weakest relationship to happiness. Economists would like you to believe that you can work hard and gain the promotion for money because that's the ultimate rationale for an economic system. The more money you have, the happier that society should be. These days, that's wrong. Wednesday, we'll see what the alternative is.